fair and fashionable young America has installed Phelan's Night Blooming Sirius as a specialty in all its drawing rooms, dressing rooms, and boudoirs. It is well. Beauty should breathe a fragrant atmosphere, and nature in all her bowers has no richer perfume than this. Sold everywhere. I flew the air with the greatest of ease, a daring young man on the dying Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 33. That ad I read at the top was not printed on page 4 of the Syracuse Journal of April 7th, 1871, 150 years ago yesterday, but all of the articles that form springboards for the topics I'm going to talk about in tonight's episode were. So, you'll notice I said 150 years ago yesterday. If I had been really on the ball, I would have gotten this out before midnight last night, and I would have been able to say 150 years ago today. But I'm still learning this guerrilla style of recording, and that means I am still being a little bit overly optimistic in my ability to plow through super blurry news text. Uh, and I got about 15 minutes into my recording last night, and then I just stopped and swore and deleted what I had because I knew that I had to go back and spend some more time on transcription, which I've now done. And I actually got about 5 or 10 minutes into tonight's uh, because I was still a little bit optimistic. So I went back and transcribed this first article just now, So now I am well and truly ready, and any mistakes that I make are just going to stay in. Tonight, I am enjoying one of my more recent tea blends. This is Oliver Pluff Scottish Breakfast Tea blended with McNulty's Yunnan China Black. Now that Oliver Pluff Scottish Breakfast is a bit timid on its own, especially for a tea that advertises itself as a smoky tea. And the McNulty's Yunnan China Black is pretty flat and uninteresting. It's just got sort of a a black tea edge to it and nothing more. However, you put those together, mm, mm, it's wonderful. It's uh, the, that black edge is just what the relatively bland Scottish breakfast tea needs. And uh, together they are a wonderful double threat. Love it. Mmm. Mmm. Yummy. So tonight I'm starting with a dramatic article from the leftmost column 
of that page four of the Syracuse Journal, April 7, 1871. A terrific thunderstorm. The lightning descends indiscriminately upon all things terrestrial. Between seven and eight o'clock this morning, the sky became overcast by an immense black cloud, and the distant rumbling of heaven's artillery foretold the approach of the first thunderstorm of the season. As the storm came nearer, daylight was well-nigh turned into darkness, and for a time the use of gas was general. Finally, the rain began to fall, and then commenced a most fearful exhibition of electrical phenomena. The vivid lightning which danced in the heavens with gleeful mockery was attended with heavy peals of thunder, and frequently sharp and startling crashes would announce the descent of the electric current. The scene was indeed awfully grand, and as the heavy, dark clouds rolled away to the eastward, everybody experienced a feeling of relief. It is but seldom that a thunderstorm leaves so many traces. We hear of many instances where trees and other objects were struck with no harm resulting, together with the following, with more serious consequences. Barnes struck and burned. Prominent among the several casualties, the most important is the burning of a number of buildings belonging to Mr. DeWitt Rose, and situated on his farm, just south of the city line, in the town of Onondaga, at about eight o'clock. The buildings were all new ones, and include his horse, cow, grain, and hay barns, carriage house, stock sheds, wood house, the latter filled with wood, and several smaller structures, all of which were entirely destroyed. The buildings were so connected that the flames from the barn, which was first struck, soon spread to the others, and all quickly in one mass of flame. The heat was so great that at one time it was feared that the dwelling house would be burned also, but fortunately the wind veered in time to prevent further damage in that direction. Mr. Rose's hired men were at work, and through their efforts all the livestock, wagons, and farming utensils were rescued from the burning buildings. In the buildings burned was about ten tons of hay, fifty bushels of wheat, ten or twelve tons of straw, a quantity of oats, and about half a ton of feed and meal, all of which was destroyed. The buildings burned were valued at about $4,000, upon which Mr. Rose has an insurance of $2,500. Dwelling House Struck The handsome brick dwelling house of Mr. A.C. Belden, number 125 West Genesee Street, was struck during the storm. The shaft struck the top central ornament of the cupola, shivering the studding thereto in splinters. The shaft, on reaching the tin roof, glanced and went off to the ground. The solid timbers of the cupola were literally splintered into toothpicks, and it is extremely fortunate that the lightning took the course it did, for had it gone downward, it must have killed some of the inmates who were in rooms directly beneath the cupola. The damages done to the building will reach $300, upon which there is no insurance. Another building damaged. When of the corner ornaments upon the brick building of Henry K. Brown on James Street was struck and split into atoms, a few splinters being only left to tell where it stood. Two men injured. 
the shaft in descending the shaft in descending the shaft in descending to the ground from brown's buildings passed so close to two men Messrs. F. A. Lowry and Dundas Havel, both of whom are in the employ of Mr. A. C. Yates, that Mr. Lowry was knocked down and partially stunned, and the umbrella in the hand of Mr. Havel was torn in ribbons. Fortunately, both escaped with an unpleasant sensation, so bad in Mr. Lowry's case that Dr. Doyle had to render medical assistance. Fire alarm telegraph injured. Another shaft descended on Catherine Street, taking effect on one of the poles of the fire alarm telegraph, and directly in front of Policeman Houck's residence. The pole, and several others each way from it, was split, and the shock caused one stroke to be struck on the City Hall bell. The second stroke of the bell, about ten o'clock this morning, was caused by testing the alarm to see that all was in order. Rumors we hear rumors of additional casualties, but have been unable to discover any foundation for them up to the time of going to press. Hugh here. Now, if you go up to the top of the page and you scan over a couple of columns to the right, you see this. Lightning. The Andes Insurance Company of Cincinnati, Ohio, insures against damage caused by lightning, whether fire ensues or not. T.S. Truair, number 3 Clinton Block, is agent. Now that tells you something right there. That I found interesting. That gives us a, a baseline for understanding just how quickly the typesetters and the publishing industry in general could turn around an ad when they wanted to, because that thunderstorm happened that morning, and they got that ad out, because that ad is clearly in response to that lightning storm. Now, over to a short article back in the leftmost column under the city items. Those infernal cacklers which have been banished from other cities, have begun their screechings in this city. Tin cans, shoelaces, and rosin will be in demand, and with them, young America will have crazed the rest of the human family. Did you notice a parallel there? Remember when I said that ad at the top was not printed 150 years ago yesterday? If you're listening closely, you just heard a connection between this article, which was printed yesterday, and that ad at the top. But first, this word from our sponsor. A few reasons why the American watch is the best. It is made on the best principle, while the foreign watch is generally made on no principle at all. The foreign watch is mostly made by women and boys, by hand. While their labor is cheap, their work dear at any price. Such watches are made without plan and sold without guarantee. They are irregular in construction and quite as irregular in movement. They are designed only to sell, and the buyer is the party most thoroughly sold. Those who have kept enores, lepines, and Swiss levers 
in professed repair for a few years will appreciate the truth of our statement. The plan of the American watch, instead of being made of several hundred little pieces screwed together, the body of the American watch is formed of solid plates. No jar interferes with the harmony of its working, and no sudden shock can throw its machinery out of gear. In riding or any business pursuit, it is all held together as firmly as a single piece of metal. It is just what all machinery should be. First, accurate. Second, simple. Third, strong. Fourth, economical. We not only secure cheapness by our system, but quality. We do not pretend that our watch can be bought for less money than the foreign make-believes, but for its real value it is sold for one-half the price. Our soldier's watch, named William Ellery, is what its name indicates, solid, substantial, and always reliable, warranted to stand any amount of marching, riding, or fighting. Our next highest quality of watch, named P.S. Bartlett, is similar in size and general appearance, but has more jewels and a more elaborate finish. Our lady's watch, recently brought out, is put up in a great variety of patterns. Many of them, of rare beauty and workmanship, is quite small, but warranted to keep time. Our young gentleman's watch is neat, not large, and just the thing for the pocket of young America. The proof of the merits of our watch may be found in the fact that we now employ over 700 workmen in our factories, and that we are still unable to supply the constantly increasing demand. Our three-quarter plate watch is thinner and lighter than the others we have described. Its fine chronometer balance is delicately adjusted to correct the vibration caused by changes of temperature. These watches are the fruits of the latest experiments in chronometry, chronometry and are made by our best workmen in a separate department of our factory. For the finest timekeeping qualities, they challenge the comparison with the best works of the most famous English and Swiss makers. Robbins and Appleton, agents for the American Watch Company, 182 Broadway, New York. Hugh here. That ad was printed in a bunch of different places, but this clearer one that I read from was printed on April 13, 1865, in the Ohio Statesman, in Columbus, Ohio. And if you listened very closely, you heard the connection between that ad and the ad about the infernal cacklers. Sorry, not the ad about the infernal cacklers, but the little complaint about the infernal cacklers. But first... I want to examine that word, screechers. The writer of the article called them... Sorry, they, they made screechings, but they called them cacklers. These infernal cacklers. I got curious about that. I didn't know whether it had some sort of cultural reference that I wasn't aware of, so I did some digging in the newspaper articles. Long story short... I don't think it has any significant meaning, aside from the obvious, but I did run into a couple of funny and 
ugly articles that I need to share. This is from the Idaho Semi-Weekly World, Boise, Co Boise County, Idaho Territory, July 20th, 1867. Oh, boy, this is ugly. Here we go. The Negroes in Louisiana have entered formal protest against female suffrage. The blacks, generally in the South, oppose the right of women to vote. Miss Anna Dickinson, Lucy Stone, Mrs. Beecher Stowe, and the rest of the strong-minded cacklers must feel humiliated at being considered unworthy of suffrage by the grossly ignorant freedmen for whom they have cackled so strenuously for years. So there's a really despicable and obvious piece of propaganda trying to set the women's suffrage movement against the abolition movement. This next one is from the Irish Republic, September 7th, 1867. Bad principle and worse practice. We commend the following from the Lansingburg, New York Family Guide to our readers. It applies with as much force to a certain national organization that we know as it can possibly do to temperance societies. We recommend it in an especial manner to those eternally dissatisfied spirits who will attach themselves to Fenian circles and so unceasingly and go unceasingly about hunting up flaws in the organization. Such uneasy and restless cacklers are most injurious to any body of men to whom they are attached, and the sooner they are driven into the honester enemy's ranks, those who boldly avow themselves enemy, the better. We know of nothing that looks so mean and contemptible as it does for temperance and moral associations to harbor jealousy and unkind feelings towards each other, finding fault and undermining each other's influence. Gather material from the world to build up each his own society. Quarry your own granite and not pull down your neighbor's house to find material to build your own. Battle against the drinking usages of society and not against each other. We are sorry to say that we have seen too much of this little, low, contemptible nothingness manifested in temperance orders. Why is it so? Such narrowness cannot have an abiding place within the soul of a noble, generous-hearted man or woman. But there is such a class, and always have been found from the commencement of time, and no doubt will be to the end of time. But it would be much for the interest of all good moral institutions if they could be prevailed upon to leave and colonize some portion of the world where they will cease to disturb the peace and harmony of others." Hugh here. So those first two were both about the women's suffrage movement, but the first one had nothing but disdain and propaganda to aim at it. And the second one was pointing out internecine squabbling within the movement and condemning it. This third one, super ugly. The public ledger of Memphis, Tennessee, Friday, October 4th, 1867. Yesterday we printed a paragraph announcing a robbery at Mr. Charles Walsh's premises of some clothing. 
Last night, a gushing colored damsel rejoicing in the name of Rosa Ellen Organ was arrested as an accomplice to the robbery. Her organ of touch was so acute that she clutched the clothing and played herself out of the house in a twinkling to the tune of Willa Nigga Steel. But misfortunes never come single. Our friend Walsh cultivates a fine hen roost filled with representatives of the feathered tribe. Dominickers, Shanghais, Bantams, and other breeds were there large as life. Last night a dark hand stole through the door, and this morning there was mourning in that roost over departed cacklers. The police looked into the affair, and as a result, a colored gentleman named Manuel Stewart is now looking through the bars at the station house. Hugh here. So, with that third one, we see more or less what I expected. Cacklers refers to chickens, and or women who sound like chickens. Uh, the... Uh, misogynistic implications are obvious, but there's nothing surprising about that. So, moving on to the rest of that short condemnation of the infernal cacklers. Tin cans, shoelaces, and resin will be in demand, and with them, young America will half-craze the rest of the human family. I want to say again, Go to the show notes and follow along. You're going to get a lot more out of this. And the reason I say that now is that you have to see how Young America is capitalized. This piqued my interest, and this investigation turned out to be a hundred times more fruitful in terms of the cultural baggage that I dug up than I ever imagined it would be. I'm not going to get too deep into this because this will easily occupy another whole episode. But in short, through all my digging, I've come to find that the phrase Young America, capital Y, capital A, refers to a cricket team from Philadelphia, a baseball team, at least one baseball team, a magazine published uh, sometime around 1868, the act of making noise at night with tin cans and rosin? Uh, I guess they were they were playing uh, on strings of some sort, like maybe a fiddle, violin, whatever. The point is, it's astonishingly specific. I found a, a number of references to young America making noise at night with tin cans and etc. It seems to have a specific connection with ice skating. I found multiple articles about young America needing to ice skate. Uh, It's associated with rowdyism and violence. It's got an image of young America anthropomorphized and refusing to bow to authority. There was one article about uh, some young American went to uh, the Vatican and refused to bow to the Pope. Uh, And this refusal to bow is especially targeted at Europe. And there's imagery of parent and child involved in this. We are the child, uh, the United States is the child, and the mother country is the parent. And young America is rebelling and impetuous. It's got a transgressive edge to it. 
uh, there are times when young America refers literally to young people, but even when it's literal, there is a, a tinge of those literal young people do represent the same impetuousness and uh, uncontrollability of the young, industrialized, moving, shaken, consumer-driven country. And consumerism is a really big factor here because I, I found a bunch of advertisements, a couple of which I've already read to you and will continue to do throughout the episode, which refer to young America. Obviously, the advertising industry by 1871 was all over that sort of exploitation of memes. And I'm getting the feeling that the advertisers are the ones who were primarily responsible for making this meme so broad. It's such a big conceptual bucket uh, it's fascinating to me. I really went down a rabbit hole on this yesterday, and I don't feel like I've gotten anywhere near the bottom. So look forward to that in a future episode. But in any event, uh, the in, in a bunch of ads, the Young America meme seemed to relate specifically to fireworks. And after I did a whole bunch of digging, I found out why. And we'll get to that right after this word from our sponsor. A striking winter novelty, the Astrakhan felt hat for young men. The handsomest winter hat ever produced in America, a Russo-American style adapted equally to St. Petersburg and New York. Superb for the promenade, the sleigh, or skating pond, entirely original, graceful in shape, and of the finest materials. The happiest combination of fur and felt ever devised. Harmonizes perfectly with the fashionable winter costume. Not stagey and spectacular, but simple and elegant. A hat to compel admiration, not provoke amazement. Only a week before the world and already a grand success. Eminently distinguished, a marvel of tasteful adaptation. Young men pronounce it the greatest hit of the day. Have you seen it? Have you heard the ladies' opinion? They approve it emphatically, and their fiat is law. Fancy never conceived anything more fascinating. Paris, with all its facilities, cannot make it. The Astrakhan hat is an institution. Mark that. It is the round top of sovereignty, Shakespeare. Gives the crowning grace to the figure of a gentleman. Not stiff, not formal, no angles, easy yet dashing. There's no hat or cap extant that compares with it. Young America accepts it with real enthusiasm. It is the sumptuary triumph of the holiday season. 
Introduced by H.F. and C.E. Oriel, 21 and 23 State Street, opposite Exchange Place. Also sold at Sabies, 18 Genesee Street, Syracuse. And we're back. Again, all those ads about young America were printed uh, sometime between 1865 and 1875. Those are more or less the only parts of this uh, episode that weren't printed on page four of the Syracuse Journal on April 7th, 1871. Once I got done with that search that yielded all those various meanings attached to young America, I found this, and then it fell into place. This is from April 11th, 1865, and this one was printed in Syracuse. Jubilations over the news. Between 12 and 1 o'clock on Monday morning, the news of the surrender of Lee and his army had begun to circulate, and even at that late hour, cheers were heard from occasional parties passing along the street. At a later hour, the bells rang out their clamorous notes on the night air. A cannon belched mimic thunders upon the silence. Bonfires were kindled, and knots of people began to gather around them. A little after three o'clock, after the important correspondence was put in type, for the readers of the courier, we strolled around to view the scene. The night was dark, rainy, and disagreeable, but the darkness was relieved and illumined by several large bonfires. There were three or four of these along Genesee Street between the courier buildings and the Syracuse house, one opposite the Voorhees house, one opposite the Syracuse house, and one or two more further south on Salina Street. Knots of people, the largest collection being near the Syracuse House and Globe Hotels and consisting of perhaps of numbers varying from 50 to 100 at different times and the rest few in number, helped these extemporized illuminations or stood watching them. The gatherings mostly consisted of boys manifesting the irrepressible enthusiasm of irrepressible young America. Two of the more staid and mature seemed to have been aroused by the many various sounds so unusual at that silent hour. As we passed up Salina Street, we found but three or four houses that were not as dark as usual. Among them was that of Stevens, the hatter, whose parlors were not only lit but decorated with the American flag suspended from the chandelier in the center of the room. A jubilant party seemed bound to make a little hideous patriotic melody of their own. They appeared by the sound to have extemporized a tin pan or something of that sort into an all-sufficient musical instrument and chanted in harmony with it the old song about hanging on a sour apple tree, a favorite amusement, not happily in fact, but in imagination of some of our admirable Cretans of superior loyalty. Towards daybreak, a little knot of jubilators still remained near the Syracuse House and Globe Hotel, 
More or less, movement and cheering continued until dawn, and soon after daylight, a band was seen moving south along North Salina Street to the stirring music of fife and drum. Monday was wet and stormy, but occasional knots gathered in prominent localities, apparently discussing the great announcement and its probable sequences. On bulletin boards, notices were posted for the meeting of citizens to prepare for a regular celebrations, a regular celebration and for meetings of military companies and firemen with a view to participating therein. We have sketched above the spontaneous and informal midnight exhibitions of the patriotic jubilee. Elsewhere will be found sketches of the more formal one on Monday night. Hugh here. It was about Lee's surrender at Appomattox. Look at the date. Again, this paper was printed on April 7, 1871. Lee's surrender at, at Appomattox Courthouse was on April 9th. 1865. So this was six years, almost to the day after Lee's surrender. These these youths that they were complaining about, that were making all the noise, the youths to whom they referred as Young America, they were getting ready for this yearly celebration of Lee's surrender. And as you can Here from that article, the specifics are too numerous to be a coincidence. They talked about how they were making improvised instruments to make noises that they thought of as as musical. And uh, it's very clear that this is what they were referring to. So that was really rewarding, getting to the bottom of that. And it was also rewarding to see, again, how broad that meme was. It wasn't just about Lee's surrender, although that celebration was certainly at the center of it. But it was also about all of these transgressive and grasping aspirations and the the self regard of the United States as a young country. And I would never have thought that the United States in 1875 would have conceived of itself as young. I mean, right after the Civil War, I would have thought that the the cultural, the zeitgeist, uh, would have been more oh, wow, we're old and haggard and worn out and tattered from that war we've just been through. But no. And this shifts my perspective on Reconstruction. If people in the United States were embracing this meme of young America and associating with it with all the industrialization and the consumerism, I mean, there was one article about how men not too long ago would wear the same coat for half their lives, and now the wool industry is booming because these flashy, young, up-and-coming, ambitious industrialists want new clothes all the time. Uh, If people are embracing an ideology of forward-looking 
impetuous consumerism, then that's just one more factor in the abandonment of Reconstruction, because the optics of Reconstruction are all about stabilizing and shoring up the established benchmarks of human rights as a result of the Civil War. And those optics don't agree with the youthful, annoying impetuousness of young America. We now take a break to hear from our sponsor. The Young America Coffee Pot. Among the articles on exhibition at the Mechanics Fair, we desire none more deserving of notice than the Young America Coffee Pot. The advantages claimed for this article are a saving of coffee, its amber clearness, and less time in producing a strong cup of coffee than any other pot. The construction of the coffee pot is simple. It is not liable to get out of order and can be easily cleaned. The pot is provided with a perforated tin reservoir in which dry ground coffee is placed, upon which boiling hot water is poured, and in from three to five minutes, a cup of strong coffee is the result. The principle of the pot is that of a leech, and the entire strength of the coffee is warranted to be extracted by this process. No boiling is required, and the coffee is as clear as if it had been strained. Mr. H. S. Ketchum will be in attendance each day at the fair and will explain the merits of the pot better than we can do. He also has them for sale and will sell state and county rights to those who desire them. We now return to our show. Back to page four of the Syracuse Daily Journal, Friday evening, April 1st, 1871. Frederick Leacher, a boy of 11 years, was arraigned, charged with jumping on and off the cars while they were in motion. He pled guilty and was sentenced to five days' confinement in the station house. Hugh here. I just wanted to mention that in passing because it's a follow-up from our previous episode. Remember the boys who were sent to the penitentiary as an example for anyone who would do something so dangerous as to jump on or off the horse-drawn streetcars while they were in motion? Well, this kid didn't get sent to the penitentiary, but uh, clearly they're, they're taking notice of this, and uh, they're still actively punishing it. Five days confinement in the station house. I don't know, it sounds better than being sent to the penitentiary, so I think he got lucky. They were past the, the peak of their performative punishment. Before we move on to more of the criminal proceedings before Justice Corbett, I want to say a few words about why I started this episode with that article about the thunderstorm. Did you notice how at the end of that article, they again tabulated the cost of all of the structures and animals and products that were destroyed, and then they noted how much of that cost was covered by insurance. This is another follow-up to our previous episode. 
Remember I mentioned the obsession with and fear of fire? Again, this was just a couple of years before the formation of the National Board of Fire Underwriters, and it's difficult to overstate how uncontrolled fires were at that time. So the lavish literary skill that they dumped into that article tells us something about the preoccupations and fears of these people. Now, I want you to contrast that with how little we know about police justice Corbett, before whom these cases that you're hearing are being presented. Now, if you've listened to this podcast at all, you know about my preoccupation with Police Justice Corbett. He was one of the most renowned Irish stump speakers of his time, and he had a transformative effect on the Irish voting bloc during the presidential campaign of 1868. And despite the fact that he spent countless hours speaking passionately, by all accounts, just uh, captivating crowds of people for hours, which was one of the most valuable skills someone could have in an age prior to electronic amplification, I know virtually nothing about what he said, because what gets passed down depends on what people are willing to write down, or able to write down. And at this time, you just had reporters there with their pads, and they were limited in how much they could uh, could take down. So all these countless hours of speeches are lost to time, much to my gnashing of teeth. By contrast, we have this vivid account of a thunderstorm 150 years ago that compares to uh, uh, Tolkien on a bad day. I mean, it's no raising of Isengard, sure, but my gosh, I felt like I was there during a couple of passages. And that preoccupation, again, speaks to what people were afraid of at that time. And think of all the people you have known who have not been able to express their feelings. My father was from a generation of men who never expressed their feelings except through anger, irritation, pique. <laughs> so what you heard in that article was a, a fixation and a preoccupation with fire, but don't forget, underlying that fixation and preoccupation was a profound fear. Now, moving on to another case presented to Police Justice Patrick Corbett. Sarah J. Wright was arraigned, charged with being a public prostitute, she pled guilty to the charge and was sentenced to pay a fine of $50 or go to the penitentiary for 90 days. The defendant was arrested in the Kirk block about 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon in the room occupied by William Blackman and Richard Squires, into which she had introduced herself. And a row ensuing, the police were sent for and the whole party taken to the watch house. Blackman and Squires were reprimanded and discharged. Hugh here. Why am I telling you about an article about 
a prostitute. After all, these prostitution cases were a dime a dozen in Syracuse at this time. Page after page after page of police court records enumerating groups of women being hauled in, being charged with being an quote-unquote inmate of a disorderly house, uh, running a disorderly house, soliciting prostitution, yada, yada, yada. There were lots and lots of uh, uh, different forms of vernacular to bowdlerize and uh, shield the public from such ugly concepts. Uh, my favorite one that I just encountered a night or two ago was uh, street strolling. But anyway, under normal circumstances, I wouldn't even bother to tell you about this. But it ties into another story from the previous day's paper. And I'll tell you all about that after this. Yale and Pelton's Stationery House. We ought before to have mentioned a business occurrence that took place some time since. The fact that the firm of J.W. Yale and Company has ceased to be, and in its stead, and at the old stand, is that of Yale and Pelton, our longtime friend D.G. Pelton, having associated with J.W. Yale. The business is somewhat changed. The book part has been discarded, and it has become substantially a stationary house, wherein the firm is amply prepared for the wholesale and retail trade. The wall and decorative paper branch is one of the specialties of the house. To it, most spacious room is devoted, with every convenience for showing samples and handling orders, whether large or small. This department is fairly loaded with beautiful and rich patterns of wallpaper, every pattern and quality, so that none can go amiss of finding there what is wanted in that line. There is the looking-glass, picture-and-photograph-frame department, a large assortment of medium sizes always ready, and special sizes of any and every style and pattern made to order. Then there is the visiting cards, and party cards, and monogram branch, for which Y and P have an engraver and printer expressly. These cards and monograms on envelopes and notepaper are very neat, the cream of style, and are gotten up with great promptness. The members of the firm are go-ahead, drive-ahead, regular young America men. They go in for having the best of goods, Lots of them, doing a large trade at small profit and being satisfied with reasonable gains. Those in want of anything in their line should give Yale and Pelton a call at 9 Franklin Buildings, Genesee Street, or 9 and 11 Railroad Street, for their store runs through from street to street. And we're back! Note again the connection between young America and consumerism. Now let's go back briefly to the last sentence in that previous article that I read you. Blackman and Squire... Oh, sorry. Uh, ah, here we go. The next article before Police Justice Corbett. Henry Miles was arraigned, charged on oath of Emma Miles with an assault and battery. 
He pled guilty and was sentenced to pay a fine of $50 or go to the penitentiary for six months. Miles was also charged on oath of Julia A. Howland with an assault and battery. He pled guilty and was sentenced to pay a fine of $50 or go to the penitentiary for six months. Paid both fines. This is the party referred to in the item-headed Rescued in yesterday's journal. Hugh here. I apologize for my sputtering. Uh, this is the one that I meant to refer to when I mentioned the last line. I'll read it again. This is the party referred to in the item headed Rescued in yesterday's journal. So, I'm going to jump out of 150 years ago yesterday and jump back to the previous day's Syracuse Daily Journal. Rescued. Considerable excitement was occasioned about noon today in the vicinity of number 142 East Washington Street, a somewhat notorious bagno kept by a woman with blazing red hair. In consequence of the unceremonious manner in which the well-dressed man rescued his good-looking wife from a life of shame which she was leading there, he entered the house in search of her, and finding his object rewarded, first presented her in the yard and dishabille, attracting the attention of the neighbors, who assembled to see the strange proceedings. The twain entered the house again, but soon after emerged a second time, the woman having, in the meantime, arrayed herself in more befitting garments. Her trunk was also brought out and placed upon the sidewalk to await the coming of a baggage man. The husband took the arm of the truant wife, and, taking an uptown direction, soon disappeared from the view of the astonished spectators, not the least so of whom were four nymphs, who saw the proceedings both within and without. Who the parties were, we did not learn. Hugh here. So this story about a husband dragging his wife out of a whorehouse, I have to admit, I was amused by this. It seemed like something out of a movie. I could just picture it in my head. I could almost hear the music in my head. And I posted this on Facebook, and I said something to the effect of, sometimes historical newspapers are just the most fun. And a female friend of mine said something to the effect of, I wonder why she chose to be a prostitute rather than lived with her husband, and it brought me up short because I honestly, I feel embarrassed admitting this, but I hadn't even thought of that. And then another female friend said, I thought the same thing, and my wife said, me too. And I have to stop and admit here, that's privilege. My privilege as a white male, a white male who has spent a good portion of his lifetime watching movies and absorbing the, the optics of those movies allowed me not to think of that subtext. 
And the way the article was written helped that to happen. The article was written in a way that invited me to find it funny and invited me not to think of the reasons why this woman might have preferred life in a house of prostitution to life with her husband. And I'll just say this, we are not even close to being done with Henry Miles. Unfortunately, there's another episode to be had out of him. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Young America Coffee Pot. This coffee pot has recently been invented by our townsman, Mr. S. Crowell, and should have been called the Lightning Coffee Pot, for it will make a stronger and better cup of coffee in five minutes than you can get out of the old-fashioned pot in half an hour. Our good-hearted friend, Billy Greenway, is the agent for the pot, and it is amusing to hear him speak of its supreme qualities, and at the same time make coffee enough for a dozen men in less than two minutes and a half. Billy is a most agreeable agent, and his pot is a curiosity, yet everything about it is so plain and simple that a child can easily understand it and use it successfully. No hotel or restaurant should be without the Young America coffee pot, for five minutes is long enough to make coffee sufficient for 100 persons. The agent may be found in the arcade every day during business hours. In order that our community may be satisfied that this coffee pot is what we say it is, we will publish recommendations for some of our best citizens. We have used the Young America coffee pot, invented by Mr. S. Crowell, and do not hesitate to say that it is decidedly the best that has come under our observation. For producing the delicious beverage in its greatest perfection, both of aromatic flavor and amber clearness, we have no hesitation in saying that it is superior to any that we have ever examined. And the modus operandi of producing the coffee for the table is so simple that the most inexperienced cook can readily acquire the use of it. Dr. Westcott, Dr. Boynton, Dr. Whiting, John Malloy, John Greenway, Brewer, William Baumgrass, Artist, Harry Gifford, J.P., E.A. Williams, Canal Call? C-O-L period. Canal Call. I don't know what that means. Anyway, on to the next article, which is yet another case presented to Police Justice Corbett 150 years ago yesterday. William Lyon and Henry Jones, two, quote, lows, unquote, that's capital L-O apostrophe S, from the reservation, got drunk yesterday afternoon and, thinking themselves on the warpath, Lyon undertook to tomahawk Jones with a sharp axe, but Jones ran until he got a stone, when Lyon showed the white feather and in turn ran, Jones chasing him. The battleground was Fayette Street, and for some time victory was undecided upon which side to settle, and perhaps blood would have flown had not the police interfered and locked up the dusky warriors. On being questioned, the prisoners told where they got their snaky, 
and after using them as witnesses, they were discharged. Next paragraph down. Morgan Mira, Morgan Mara was arraigned, charged, on the oath of William Lyon and Henry Jones, Indians, with selling liquor to them. He pled not guilty in each instance, was tried, convicted, and sentenced to pay a fine of $25 or go to the penitentiary for 90 days on each charge. Mara was also charged on oath of the chief of police with selling liquor without license. He pled not guilty, was tried, convicted, and sentenced to pay a fine of $50 or go to the penitentiary for six months. Hugh here. So, when I saw that what was clearly some form of racial slur, the two lows from the reservation got drunk yesterday, I had to investigate it. I had to know what the heck that meant. Folks, this is so ugly. This is, this sucks. This was like a punch in the gut. I felt nauseated. And I got to the bottom of this so much faster than I ever expected to. All it took was a quick query on Fulton history. I looked for the specific uh, letters L-O apostrophe S within, you know, 10 words or whatever of Indian or Indians or reservation. The first hit told me what that meant and my stomach sank. It was a quote. Low, the poor Indian. L-O exclamation point, the poor Indian. It's the first line of a poetic passage. And this just expanded into my brain in this sick, uncanny familiarity. I knew instantly how this meme propagated. I knew the sick smiles that spread on the faces of people who spread the meme because it is so perfectly akin to what happens today among right-wing shitbags that take every opportunity they can to make fun of any gesture of compassion and empathy that the left tries to evince. They, they're like children twisting the very attempt at empathy into a cruel joke. And that's exactly what happened here. So, wanting to know where that poem originated, I did a little bit of Googling, quickly found that it was from Alexander Pope's 1734 poem, An Essay on Man. Here's the passage. Lo, the poor Indian, whose untutored mind sees God in clouds or hears him in the wind, his soul, proud science, never taught to stray, far as the solar wind or milky way, yet simple nature to his hope has given, behind the cloud-topped hill 
and humbler heaven, some safer world in depth of woods embraced, some happier island in the watery waste, where slaves once more their native land behold, no fiends torment, no Christians thirst for gold. To be contents his natural desire, he asks no angel's wing, no seraph's fire, but thinks, admitted to that equal sky, his faithful dog shall bear him company. Hugh here. So that's the passage from this poem by Alexander Pope, who, according to Wikipedia, is one of the most quoted and was one of the most influential writers in English literature. I'm a dummy and largely ignorant of literature, so I'll have to, <clears throat> I'll have to take their word for it. But my first thought was, well, I can't make any assumption about what the word Indian meant to this Alexander Pope guy. He was an Englishman in 1734. I mean, who knows what he was talking about. So I did a little more digging. And thanks to uh, a website about the history of uh, literature on Native Americans, I found out about Dr. Cadwallader Caldwell's 1727 book, The History of the Five Indian Nations of Canada. Now, I have no information that proves that this Caldwell book was a precursor to Pope's poem, but there's a really good chance that it was because this Pope guy was, by all accounts, voraciously autodidactic. And Caldwell's book was written seven years before Pope's poem. So, get a load of this from the introduction to the history of the five Indian nations of Canada. The five nations are a poor and generally called barbarous people, bred under the darkest ignorance, and yet a bright and noble genius shines through these black clouds. None of the greatest Roman heroes have discovered a greater love to their country or a greater contempt of death than these people called barbarians have done when liberty came in competition. Indeed, I think our Indians have outdone the Romans in this particular. Some of the greatest of those have we know murdered themselves to avoid shame or torments. But our Indians have refused to die meanly or with but little pain when they thought their country's honor would be at stake by it, but have given their bodies willingly to the most cruel torments of their enemies to shew, as they said, that the five nations consisted of men whose courage and resolution could not be shaken. They greatly sully, however, those noble virtues by that cruel passion, revenge. This they think it not only lawful but honorable to exert without mercy on their country's enemies, and for this only it is that they can deserve the name of barbarians. But what, alas, sir, have we Christians done to make them better? We have indeed reason to be ashamed that these infidels, by our conversation and neighborhood, are become worse than they were before they knew us. Instead of virtues, we have only taught them vices, that they were entirely free from before that time. The narrow views of private interest have occasioned this, and will occasion greater, even public mischiefs, if the governors of the people do not, like true patriots, exert themselves and put a stop to these growing evils. If these practices be winked at, instead of faithful friends, 
that have manfully fought our battles for us, the five nations will become faithless thieves and robbers and join with every enemy that can give them any hopes of plunder. If care were taken to plant and cultivate in them that general benevolence to mankind, which is the true first principle of virtue, it would effectively eradicate those horrid vices occasioned by their unbounded revenge, and then they would no longer deserve the name of barbarians, but would become a people whose friendship might add honor to the British nation. The Greeks and Romans, sir, once as much barbarians as our Indians now are, deified the heroes that first taught them those virtues, from whence the grandeur of those renowned nations wholly proceeded. A good man, however, will feel more real satisfaction and pleasure from the sense of having any way forwarded the civilizing of a barbarous nation, or of having multiplied the number of good men, than from the fondest hopes of such extravagant honors." Hugh here. So, Caldwell, and then seven seven years later, Pope, in the early 1700s, just absolutely dove into the waters of the noble savage literary trope. Hell, for all I know, it was Caldwell who helped establish that trope. I mean, man, this is thick condescension that we're reading here. And they, Pope and Caldwell were trying within their own limitations to evince empathy. And even that condescending empathy within Pope's poem, which came forward to the 1800s was taken and gleefully twisted into a cruel joke by these people in 1871 who took that line, lo the poor Indian, and made it into a racial slur by calling these Native Americans lows from the reservation. It still twists my gut because... I don't claim to be an authority on this, but I have read enough newspapers published between, say, 1840 and 1868 to find that one of the absolute sickest aspects of these newspapers, and I've talked about this in at least one previous episode, is that in almost every ideological axis, There are plenty of people on both sides, whether it's suffrage, whether it's emancipation, whether it's free trade, anything having to do with religion, you name it, there are teams rooting in the media for each side. The one exception I've seen to that is Native Americans by... 1868, there was nobody, at least from what I can see from the media, there was nobody who had one iota of sympathy left for them. They were pests to be cleared off the land by the military 
at the very least. No one cared. The propaganda had worked and the country had collectively decided that our moving in and rolling over them was a done deal and we didn't care about the whys and wherefores. They were a threat to us now and they were the bad guys. There was nobody occupying that liberal end of the axis of ideology pertaining to Native Americans and that lacunae of of empathy for Native Americans has always sickened me and that's why this this cruel joke about the lows from the reservation hit me so hard. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did a lot of stammering. Please leave uh, leave a comment and let me know how I'm doing. Let me know what you think. Uh, at this point, I'm so deep into these uh, newspapers from 150 years ago that these these articles that seem to reflect so much about the tenor of the time, I I can't tell what's general generally uh, appealing. I I hope you've enjoyed this a fraction as much as I did. Thanks for listening, and until next time, seek. Context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze His movements were graceful, the girls he could please And my love he stole away